On this episode of the Maryland Baseball Network podcast, we recap the Terps' Big Ten opening series victory against Northwestern, pick a Terp of the week, and play another round of fair or foul. Plus, Connor Newcomb sits down with the walk-off hero from Saturday, Taylor Wright, to talk about his transition to College Park from Canada and Colorado Northwestern Community College. Finally, we preview the Terps' midweek game against William & Mary on Tuesday, an upcoming weekend series against the Illinois Fighting Illini. Here we go. This is the Maryland Baseball Network podcast. Here's your host, Justin Galanti. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 51 of the Maryland Baseball Network podcast. As you heard, I'm Justin Galanti, once again joined by Connor Newcomb. We hope you all enjoyed the holiday weekend, and it was capped off by the Terps taking two of three from Northwestern in the Big Ten opening series for the Terps, and uh, a really big series win for Maryland, Connor. And it was a fun weekend to be at Bob Turtle Smith Stadium. I mean, obviously... After Friday night when you had Quinn Lavelle going out there for the Wildcats, a complete game shutout against the Terps. Wasn't a good start to the series, but the Terps come back Saturday, an exciting walk-off walk in the 10th inning after a little comeback in the 8th inning in that one. And then you go over to Sunday, the big day for Kevin Biondic, the home run, the save, and it was an exciting weekend as the Terps started conference play with a winning record and a series victory. Yeah, Maryland now 14-14, 2-1 in the Big Ten. We'll recap the series here starting on Friday. As you said, the bats were not there for Maryland. A complete game, four-hit shutout from the left-hander, a freshman, Quinn Lavelle, for Northwestern. He struck out eight, only walked one over 119 pitches. And the Terps, as we said, only got four hits in the game. They lose the game 4 nothing. Taylor Bloom, Maryland's starter, Uh, He's now lost three in a row, but I thought he was really good on Friday. Had one hiccup in the second inning, struggled, gave up three runs, but made it through eight innings on 108 pitches, didn't give up a run after the second inning, through the eighth inning, and it was just kind of a hard luck loss for Taylor, who threw the ball really well, the best he has at home this season. Yeah, after that three-run second inning, there was a five-inning stretch in there where he threw only 49 pitches, was completely mowing down the Wildcats hitters, and of course, just the Maryland offense couldn't get it going at all, but I thought Bloom was really good after that last Friday start against Stetson when he was going up against Logan Gilbert and the Hatters. He just wasn't great. He still got through six and two-thirds in that one, but just got hit around a lot. In this one, he had the one bad inning. Coach Corey Muscara talked about you know, his one play was first and third with nobody out. He got a bunt back to him. He tried to glove flip home for the out instead of just going to first. Ended up being safe at the plate, and the runners stayed on base. And after that, there was a pop out to first base, and then there ended up being a sacrifice fly. That would have gotten the Terps out of the inning with just one run allowed. Instead, it was three and you know, if Bloom just maybe makes that play to first, he gives up one run over eight because he was so magnificent after the second inning. So a very, very good start. The Terps didn't help him out, but then the bats kind of got it going a little bit as the series went on. Yeah, so it was the second week in a row that Maryland loses the Friday night game and are put in a position where they have to win Saturday and Sunday in order to win the series. And for Maryland playing against a Northwestern team that doesn't have the best record right now after the series just one and five in the Big Ten, you kind of feel like Maryland needs 
to take this series at home, which made Saturday something of a must win, and it didn't get off to a good start. The Terps were down 3 nothing before starter Tyler Blom could even record it out, but they bounced back with two in the bottom of the first inning. Northwestern scored again in the second. Maryland scored again in the second, and then the Wildcats put up one more in the top of the third, so it's 5-3 to three after two-and-a-half innings. And the Terps, before we get to the rest of the game, I thought responded early to stay in the game very well, something we haven't really seen this season. And after getting shut out on Friday night, you're down 3 nothing right away, and you're starting to worry about what's going to happen over the weekend. I was really impressed with the fight of this team to put up two in the first, one in the second, and stay in the ball game and give themselves a chance to come back later. Yeah, it was clear that Tyler Blum didn't have his best stuff from the beginning of that game. Obviously, the walk, the single, and the three-run homer, you could tell right away. But the Terps offense jumped right back out there, as you said, in the first inning after Blum gave up three. They struck right back in the bottom of the first. And the offense stayed in it. They were able to rally, you know, the, the tying run in the eighth inning, obviously, was first and third, no outs, and the double play ball kind of erased the rally but got the run in. But, you know, even though they probably wanted to take the lead, have a big inning there in the eighth and win it in the ninth, they did enough to get the run in. And I know, you know, you're looking at it like, wow, they grinded into a double play. How great is that for the offense? Well, you know, there's been a couple times this season where they've had scenarios like that, and it's a strikeout and a pop-up, and, you know, they're not even getting the one run out of first and third and no out scenarios like that. So it was big for the offense to get that big run. And then, of course, they were able to hand it over to Kevin Biondic on that Saturday game and shutting down the Northwestern offense. And when you get kind of deep into that Northwestern bullpen, they've really only got a couple arms who are solid out there. And after they had exhausted those options, the Terps got to face Josh Levy in the 10th inning. And they really just walked their way into a win. Yeah, so the guy that kept Maryland in the game and allowed them the chance to come back was freshman left-hander Sean Fisher, who was coming off and outing on Tuesday against Richmond when Maryland lost that game, and he didn't get an out that day. Then on Saturday, he comes back with three and a third, two hits, no runs, one walk, two strikeouts, aided a little bit by Marty Costas throwing out a runner at the plate to save a run from coming in, obviously, but... Fisher kept Maryland in the game, and without that, I mean, if Northwestern extends the lead to 7-3, 8-3, you know, this offense really hasn't shown the ability this season to come back from that many runs down, but two runs is something you can do, and that's what Maryland did in the bottom of the seventh. They get an RBI single from A.J. Lee. Will Watson, as you said, brings in the tying run in the bottom of the eighth inning on a double play, but... I totally agree with your point that bringing in the run was the most important thing there, and then you figure it out later. Beyond it gives them two scoreless out of the bullpen, and then in the bottom of the 10th, they chase Richard Forden from the game, and then were just patient enough to win it. Taylor Wright stands up there for four pitches with nobody out, and the base is loaded after Northwestern misplayed a bunt. It's ball four uh, on the last pitch of the game. A run comes in to score, and Maryland wins, and yeah, it wasn't the prettiest start, and it wasn't the most exciting way to win the game, but if you're Maryland, you had to win the game, and it was huge that they did. Yeah, the Terps got it done, help from Biondic, as you said, on the mound in those two innings, and they just, you know, they found a way in that 10th inning, and it wasn't, you know, the big hit, the walk-off home or anything like that, but even you get Tommy Gardner just able to do a job with first and second and nobody out to lay a bunt down and then a little bit of a mistake from Northwestern, they don't cover first base, he gets in with the single. Then you get the bases loaded, and then, the entire inning changes for Northwestern there because if they can get the out at first, they can possibly walk Taylor Wright to set up a possible double play and go after the next hitter in the Maryland order. Instead, they have to go after the lefty Taylor Wright, and 
really Josh Levy just couldn't find the zone in the Terps. You know, it wasn't the most exciting walk-off win, but they found a way. They needed to even the series, and it was a series they needed to win against a Northwestern team that's really struggled this season. They were able to do that as they went to Sunday's game. So that set up the rubber match on Easter Sunday, and the Terps got off to a great start in the first inning. Nick Dunn, the new leadoff hitter, hits a home run on the first pitch he sees. The Terps get another run on an RBI single from A.J. Lee, and you're feeling good up 2 nothing. But then Northwestern gets three in the third inning off Hunter Parsons. It was the first time we've really seen him struggle at all in a month. But just like Bloom, Parsons settled down, didn't give up a run in the fourth, fifth, sixth, or seventh, got through seven innings, allowed seven hits, three runs, walked three, and struck out three. And I think if this is going to be the day Hunter Parsons or – if this is going to be the way Hunter Parsons quote-unquote struggles, you're going to take that 100 times out of 100 for Maryland because seven inning three runs is a very quality start, and you feel like you should win every day you get that. Yeah, we talked about this yesterday. The old Hunter Parsons, the 2017 Hunter Parsons, if he got into an inning like that third inning where he gave up a couple of hits, you know, you had Marty diving for a ball in right field that he couldn't get to, had it boot off his glove that allowed a run to score on that play and a runner to get into scoring position who would come in to score as well. You know, you would see things kind of balloon on Hunter Parsons, maybe not settle down and make his pitches, but after he gave up that third run, he kind of recomposed himself, got the big outs. Then he went into the fourth inning. He loaded the bases with two outs and faced Northwestern's best hitter in Alex Arrow. And I think at that point, that batter in the game is when we saw that, you know, Hunter Parsons has really turned a corner here. And even when he's in a jam, he can kind of settle down and get out of it. He gets what had been maybe Northwestern's best hitter of the weekend, definitely of the season, and Alex Arrow out with the bases loaded. And then after that fourth inning, he just cruised through the next couple of innings through seven and allowed the Terps offense to again come back and win the game. Yeah, and it was 3-2 to two Northwestern until the bottom of the eighth inning. And Jack Pagliarini, the starter for the Wildcats, settled into a groove after that two-run first inning. There was a stretch where he retired 15 in a row. And I said it right before it happened in the bottom of the eighth inning. It's, it felt like a day where Maryland, if they were going to win the game, it was going to have to come on one big swing. So after a rocky top of the eighth, but John Murphy, who pitched that inning, got out of it, got out of a jam. Then in the bottom of the eighth, it's still 3-2. Nick Dunn leads off with a single. Or excuse me, Justin Morris leads off with a walk. Then Nick Dunn grounds into a double play. Now it's two outs, nobody on. But Marty Costas has a good at-bat, works a single. He gets on base. And then Kevin Biondic hits a go-ahead two-run home run with two outs in the bottom of the eighth inning. I think unquestionably the biggest swing in the season and an incredible moment for a senior with his whole family uh, sitting right behind home plate to put Maryland on top. Yeah, it was such a big swing because you had a guy leading off in Justin Morris in that inning who has really struggled this season. He'd already drawn a walk earlier in the game. He draws another huge walk to start the inning. And then you get Nick Dunn to the plate, the guy that's been hitting all weekend, had the home run, the three-hit Saturday, been hitting all season. And he grounds into the double play. You're thinking he's going to get on base. You're going to keep the rally going with the top of the order. And that was really a deflator, that double play right there. But Marty Costas comes right back up and does what he's been taught to do this season. He gets a first-pitch fastball that he likes, gets himself a base hit, and then Kevin Bionic comes up and he didn't really hit a pitch right down the middle. It almost looked like he got under it a little bit, maybe off the end of the bat when he took that swing with two outs in the bottom of the eighth, but he got enough to get it out in left center field. And as you said, I think I agree, the biggest swing of the season for the Terps had put him up, but uh, 
The ninth inning wasn't so easy as John Murphy came back out there. Yeah, Murph struggled a little bit again. Northwestern loads the bases with two outs. Rob Vaughn makes the move to Kevin Biondic, who was pitching two days in a row for the first time in his career. Biondic throws one pitch. It was ripped into left field, and Will Watson, who hasn't seen much time in the outfield over the last two years, comes in, makes a sliding catch to save the game, win the game for Maryland 4-3, to and they take the series 2-1 to against Northwestern. A huge, huge series win. Great way to start Big Ten play. You get back to 500, and what an exciting game it was. And I was talking about this after the game with a few people. I think you were part of this conversation as well, where – so many of the games this season for Maryland on the winning side or the losing side have been blowouts. So it was kind of a, a refreshing feeling to have Saturday and Sunday close games tight to the end where, you know, you're getting a little nervous, you're getting a little stressed out. We really haven't had any games like that this season. Yeah, and this, this weekend was, as you said, it was just refreshing to see the Terps kind of battling through a tight game. And all three games, especially Saturday and Sunday, kind of felt similar. You know, you had all the runs scored early. The Maryland starter gives up one you know, big inning, it was Bloem in the first, it was Hunter Parsons in the third inning in those two games, and then you kind of had the middle part of the game where on Saturday for Northwestern, it was Ryan Bader who came in after Hank Christie got two outs in that game and kind of worked through the middle innings for the Terps on Saturday. You know, they had Sean Fisher doing that, and Sunday it was Hunter Parsons who settled down along with Jack Pagliarini who settled down as well, and then you got the exciting runs in the end of the game, the 8th, ninth, and 10th innings over the weekend. And it, it's got to be a good feeling for the Terps to see themselves get through a tough game. You know, a team that has some bullpen questions coming into the year, still some bullpen questions, but to see guys like Sean Fisher get it done, Kevin Bionic just continue to get it done for the Terps and have Hunter Parsons really, I think, get over another hurdle for him because in these last couple of great starts, he really hasn't given up the big inning. You know, he's been mowing down hitters pretty quickly. And then we kind of saw something that we've seen before, him giving up a bunch of hits in a row. But for him to get over that, get past it, and then just quickly work through the rest of the order a couple more times, that was big to see from Parsons. Even though it wasn't his best start of the year, I think it was still a very good one for his resume. So two weeks into the conference schedule, nine of the 14 teams in the Big Ten are at or above 500, and Maryland is one of those teams. Northwest, or excuse me, Michigan and Purdue top the league. They are 3-0 and each. Michigan is quite possibly the hottest team in the country right now. They've won 12 in a row and sit at 16-11. Purdue is 14-10. and Then you have Illinois and Rutgers at 4-2. and Illinois dropped two of three at home against Iowa this weekend. The Terps will see the fighting Illini this upcoming weekend here in College Park. Rutgers 4-2 and two in the conference. But I think it's worth noting that the Scarlet Knights have the worst strength of schedule of any Power 5 team in America. So, uh, you know, we'll kind of think about what their 15-10, and 4-2 and two actually means. Then you have a pack of Ohio State, Minnesota, and Maryland, each at 2-1. and one. Iowa is 3-2. and two. Indiana is 1-1. One and one. They are now number 10 in the country in the D1 Baseball Top 25 poll at 19-15. and 15. Then the four teams under 500 in the league, Nebraska 2-4, and four, Northwestern 1-5, Penn State 1-5, and, and Michigan State also 1-5. But these next two weeks, obviously, are going to be huge for Maryland because you're playing first place Michigan in two weeks in Michigan and Illinois at 4-2 and two this week. So uh, it should be entertaining, but that's kind of where the Big Ten sits right now. And right now we will pick our Terp of the week from this last week. It was a loss on Tuesday against Richmond. Then the Terps took two of three from Northwestern. I think this is a pretty easy choice. Uh, we'll see if we have the same person here. Uh, I think I have two Terps in mind, but 
you can't go against the hero from Sunday's game, I guess. So Kevin Biondic has got to be my Terp of the Week. Look, Sunday was great for him. He gets the big two-run homer in the bottom of the eighth inning to put the Terps on top. Then he comes into what has to be a tough position for any pitcher, let alone a guy who, you know, he's looked great this season, but he's still been pitching in college baseball for a half a season now. And that's a tough scenario. Bases loaded, two outs, you got to come up and face a guy in the middle of the order. And, you know, you've had your guy, John Murphy, out there get five outs, but just not able to get that final out. And Bionic gets in, and he makes one pitch and, of course, gets the help from Will Watson out in left field, who had a nice weekend as well for the Terps. And then, of course, it was Saturday as well. You know, Bionic was the hero on Sunday, but you can't forget about what he did Saturday out of the bullpen, a scoreless ninth and a scoreless tenth, setting up the Terps to walk it off in the bottom of the tenth inning. So a lot of guys had a good weekend for the Terps. They took two of three, but I got to go Kevin Bionic. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it has to be Kevin Bionic. He also had a home run on Tuesday against Richmond. Uh, didn't have the best game in the world on Friday, but as you said, Saturday gets the win. Then on Sunday, he gets the save and hits the game-winning home run. I don't know if anybody has ever hit a game-winning home run and then the next inning got the save, but that's what Kevin did this weekend. It was incredibly impressive, so I think it's a consensus among the two of us that Kevin Biondic is the Terp of the Week. Now we're going to play another game of fair or foul. We have five more statements this week, and uh, we love playing this game. We hope you Enjoy listening to it. Our first statement of the week after impressive games on Saturday and Sunday, Will Watson should be the everyday left fielder for Maryland. You know what? I, it's a little tough because it's two games and he hasn't played a lot this season. But looking back to last year when he didn't play a lot of left field, it was mostly as the Terps designated hitter last year, but he was basically an everyday player for Maryland. He was a solid hitter around 260, I believe, last year with the batting average. And, you know, this year he hasn't hit as well, but – this weekend, he gets a big hit Saturday, had a solo homer in that one. Then he gets a couple of hits on Sunday and, of course, makes the big catch in left field. And, you know, the bat's going to come around for Watson if he gets consistent at-bats. He's not going to hit 180 the entire season if he's in the lineup every day. But I think the other thing that's making me say that's a fair statement, just from the eye test yesterday, and he made the good sliding play, he just looks so more, much more comfortable in left field than he did at times last season when – Obviously, you know, credit to him, he wasn't really playing a lot in the outfield when he would get, get stuck out there maybe once a week. But, you know, the last two days of the weekend, he looked very, very comfortable out there, and he had to run down a couple of balls out there, make the big play in the ninth inning on Sunday. So I think a fair statement, Will Watson should keep getting his chance out there and left. Yeah, I think it's fair. I, I think, it, you know, a two-game sample size is not enough to say this guy should be the everyday left fielder but I think he needs to be out there the next few games and give him a shot to stay in rhythm offensively. As you said, the game-saving catch Sunday, two hits Sunday, a home run on Saturday. And the other thing is that the other outfield options are just not working, unfortunately, for Maryland right now. Two guys they thought were going to contribute quite a bit coming into the season, Randy Bednar and Richie Sheikoffer, um, have not really shown the ability to hit yet and look they're freshmen halfway through their freshman year it happens but right now I think Will Watson the senior has to be the choice out in left field for Maryland you keep Marty Costas in right field where he was last year and see if they can keep on uh, this role coming off the two straight wins against Northwestern statement number two of fair or foul Kevin Biondic a guy who had never pitched in college before this season he has a 0.68 ERA right now the statement Kevin Biondic is Maryland's closer I think that is a fair statement. However, I would like to take it with a grain of salt because John Murphy is your veteran, at least pitching-wise. I know Kevin Biondic a year older, but 
John Murphy was named the closer at the beginning of the season. Yes, he has struggled a little bit, but the ERA is still under three. He's still striking a bunch of guys out. He's just struggling with the command a little bit right now. So I think come Tuesday against William and Mary, if the Terps are up by one in the ninth inning, yes, I think I'd throw Kevin Biondic out there. But I don't know if I would name Kevin Biondic the closer closer right now because I still think you have to have a lot of faith in John Murphy out there as well. I'm going to say it's a foul statement. Um, I think Maryland should go back to kind of what it had last year where there's no set closer, let the game dictate who's coming in at the end. Sometimes Biondic's played a lot of first base over the weekend as always, and he's been throwing a lot there or something. Give Murphy the innings, see if Biondic, see if you need Biondic to clean it up at the end. But there's no reason to be giving up on John Murphy as your closer right now. I think it's just a second option and a tremendous sec- second option that uh, Kevin Biondic has given you. Statement number three, kind of playing off that, there's been a narrative, I think, throughout the season that there's something wrong with John Murphy. Everybody's worried about John Murphy. And while the command hasn't been great, this guy has a 2.77 ERA. So statement here, we need to stop worrying and complaining about John Murphy. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's fair that we need to stop worrying about John Murphy. I mean, the ERA, as you said is under three. He's got 21 strikeouts this season in 13 innings. So it's not like the stuff is gone at all. We saw him, especially in the eighth inning Sunday, not as much in the ninth where he let the bases loaded, but in the eighth he was getting the fastball over and getting the curveball over, and he was looked very good in that inning. Then he obviously let a couple runners on, but he still ended up getting five outs for the Terps in that game Sunday with the Terps ended up obviously winning when Kevin Bionda came in and got the final out. But you know, John Murphy, he's still got the stuff. He's Maybe it takes a little bit of a mechanical adjustment, especially something we saw in the ninth on Friday. There was a couple batters where he was just missing way up and out with a fastball. And, you know, sometimes when you're missing that badly, it's just a little bit of a mechanical tweak on the mound that you can make. So if he works with Terps pitching coach Corey Mascara over the week, maybe he can fix that a little bit. But I don't think there's really anything wrong mentally or anything going on with John Murphy. Maybe just Took a little bit of a tweak you know, over this next weekend, and he'll be back because he's still striking guys out at a very high rate. I agree. I think it's definitely a fair statement. Look, if a guy's going to have a 2.770 RA and that is him quote-unquote struggling, imagine how good John Murphy's going to be when he starts to get his command back a little bit. So we both agree. Uh, the, the narrative that John Murphy is struggling right now uh, needs to go away, especially while a guy's got an ERA, you know, a healthy number of points under three. Statement number four, after really struggling to find someone in the, hit, in the leadoff spot all season, the Terps went to Nick Dunn this weekend. He broke what was, over the previous nine games, a three-for-33 stretch for Maryland leadoff hitters. Dunn this weekend in three games, five-for-12 with a home run and three runs scored. Uh, after trying, Marty Costas, Zach Jankarski, Tommy Gardner, A.J. Lee in that spot. The statement, the Terps have found their leadoff hitter in Nick Dunn. Completely fair to me. Me and uh, Jared Bellman talked about this Friday on the broadcast before the game. That was the first time we had seen Nick Dunn into the lineup card in the leadoff spot. And we talked about it like, look, you can go to the leadoff spot in a lot of ways. You can take it as a guy. You want some speed out there who can try to get on base and steal some bases. Or you want a guy who can, you know, a singles hitter, a guy who's going to get on in front of your power hitters. But the most basic way, and I think the most effective way to build a lineup is you look at the guy who's getting the most hits and getting on base the most, you want him to hit first because the guy in the first spot gets the most at-bats over a game, over a weekend, and over a season. And you want your best hitter to come up to the plate the most amount of time. So, And the other point of this is 
Nick Dunn only really hits leadoff once in a game. You know, he might lead off another inning or something, but he's only leading off the game once. Other than that, he's going to come in in different spots in the lineup during an inning. So Nick Dunn, you want him to get the most at-bats because he's Maryland's best hitter right now, and he thrived in the spot over the weekend, and I think it should continue. I'm being complete, to be completely honest, I'm really unsure about this because Nick Dunn did a great job this weekend in the leadoff spot, as you just detailed. So it's hard to say he shouldn't be hitting leadoff. But my concern is that no matter who Maryland goes to, six through nine in the order, all four guys are going to be hitting under 200. Um, no matter, you know, they don't have any options off the bench to put in those four spots that are hitting even over 200. So as you said, he's only the leadoff hitter once in the game. That means he's coming up after your six, seven, eight, nine hitters. Do you really want Nick Dunn, who's by far your best hitter, always up with nobody on base? Which didn't always happen this weekend, but it did sometimes. And when you know you can put him after somebody else who might be hitting 280, as opposed to a bunch of guys hitting 150, it puts you in a little bit of a tough spot because you don't want your best guy coming out up with nobody on base every time however he did thrive this week and he drove himself in with a home run so honestly I don't know the right answer to this one I mean because he did a great job but also you want him getting the most at bats you don't want him getting at bats with nobody on base because he's your best run producer and he's your best hitter and I think this might be where Will Watson fits into the equation if Will Watson can get his everyday at bats you know, even if he starts to hit a little bit, you probably won't see him move up any further than maybe sixth in the Maryland order. If he gets inserted again this weekend and this week, we'll see him around seven or eight probably in the Maryland lineup. If he starts to hit like he did this weekend, had three hits over the weekend, looked good at the plate, then that's another option that you can keep down there around seven or eight and a guy that can be on base for Nick Dunn. And another guy, I know Justin Morris is struggling at the plate, but that guy is not going to hit 150 all season. He's going to start to at least get on base. We saw him work a couple of walks on Sunday. You know, some guys at the bottom of that order, you got to think they're going to start to hit the ball a little bit at the bottom of that Maryland order. And I still think that Nick Dunn, you just look at it throughout the season, you want him getting up to the plate the most times. And as you said, he's leading this Terps team in home runs too, so he can drive himself in as well if the Terps need it. And I just think for now for the Terps, and also looking at it with all the other guys who have struggled in that spot, you know, we saw Marty Costas just not be able to hit out of that spot, but he gets moved down to different spots in the lineup and he can hit. A.J. Lee was, I think, had an 0 for in the, in the leadoff spot. He moves down to, you know, 5 and then 4 in the order, and he's got a couple of singles over the weekend. So, you know, guys just maybe aren't as comfortable there. It seems like it doesn't matter where Nick Dunn hits in the lineup. He's going to have the same approach and look just as comfortable. So I think he should stay in there. Our final statement for fair or foul, the series win this weekend against Northwestern saved the, se- saved the season Excuse me, for Maryland. Uh, save the season seems like kind of an overstatement a little bit. I think I'm going to go foul there, not because it wasn't a big series win, but just because it was so early in Big Ten play. Now, obviously, going into this weekend, you really wanted to win the series because it was a Northwestern team that looks like, you know, maybe it won't have the same amount of success as it did last year. However, all that success came at the end of the season for the Wildcats last year, so you just never know. But a team that has struggled this year, obviously, you wanted the series win. But the Terps were coming off a series win against Stetson. I know the bad midweek loss to Richmond made you kind of forget about that a little bit. But it's still a series win. You go into a weekend series against Illinois, one of the best teams in the Big Ten and one of the better teams in the country despite them losing two of three to Iowa. And I think even if the Terps had lost two out of three, there would still be many more chances to pick it back up this season. I think it was a big series win. You start Big Ten play over 500 after your first weekend. 
you get a series victory at home over a team that you're supposed to beat. But I don't know if save the season is really the correct wording there. Yeah, I mean, it might not be the correct wording, but I feel like Maryland had to win this series. It's tough enough to win in the Big Ten, let alone win on the road. So you have to win your home series, especially against a team that, uh, by all appearances, is at and will be at the bottom of the conference for the rest of the season. It gets the Terps back to 500. You're two and one in the league. And as we mentioned earlier, and we'll talk about a little bit later, two really tough weekends coming up in a row for Maryland with Illinois and Michigan. So I do think maybe not save the season is the right term, but I feel like Maryland had to win this series and obviously uh, big for them that they did. Well, we talked about the walk-off win on Saturday, and the hero was Taylor Wright. He walked on four pitches to bring in the game-winning run, and after coming to America from Canada for his first two years of college at Colorado Northwestern Community College, he is now in College Park, and Connor had a chance to sit down with him to talk about his journey to becoming a Maryland Terrapin. So here's that conversation. Here's the pitch. Outside ball four and it's over. A walk-off walk and the Terps win. The Terps come out to first base and mob Taylor Wright. I'm here with Terps third baseman Taylor Wright. And first of all, Taylor, thanks for joining us on the podcast this week. Yeah, thanks for having me. And so obviously coming off a pretty big weekend for you, maybe not as many hits as you wanted this weekend, but you drive in the big run on Saturday. The walk-off walk in the bottom of the 10th inning against Northwestern as your Terps took two of three from the Wildcats to open Big Ten play. So I think what everyone's wondering, where does a walk-off walk kind of rank up there with big baseball moments? Yeah, I mean, it was exciting. It was just exciting to get a win. It was kind of an anticlimactic. I mean, as far as walk-offs go, probably the least exciting walk-off you could have. But um, we came out of there with a win, and honestly, it doesn't really matter what it looks like. It Helped us get the series sweep, or not the sweep, but the series win at home, and really happy. And in that game, of course, it was a big win for you guys after getting shut out on Friday night. You guys got some big hits in that one, of course, just some big plate appearances all around, and Kevin Bionic pitched a couple of big innings. He was the star of Sunday's game as well. But you kind of came in into that game late into first base. You know, how do you kind of – I guess I'll say it like this. Your playing time's been in and out. You've been kind of splitting time with Tommy Gardner at third base. You'll come in at first base when Kevin Biondic pitches. So what's the mindset there knowing you're maybe not going to be in that starting lineup every day, but you know you're going to be a part of the team almost every day? Yeah, I mean, coming to the field every day, not necessarily knowing like where you're going to play, whether, whether you're going to start, um, doesn't really make that much of a difference. You kind of you go through the same preparation as everybody else. Um, take BP with everybody else, do the same things, and just try and get yourself as ready as possible for whatever you end up being asked to do during the game. And uh, first base is something that's new for me, but I've, I've been working on that, and Kevin's been helping me as well. And I feel pretty good over there now, and I don't feel quite as nervous when I'm over at first in a big spot in the game, which I usually am because that's when Kevin tends to pitch. So, And how much can you learn from a guy like Kevin Biondic, who, you know, is – been known for his defense his entire career now the bat's starting to come out and obviously he's on the mound become such a dynamic player this year but he's you know you don't really talk about as much you talk about great defensive shortstops and center fielders he's really a great defensive first baseman so what can you learn from a guy like that when you're kind of transitioning into a little bit of a new position in some stances yeah it makes a huge difference he plays first base as well as anyone I've ever seen and and uh he helped me a lot just like footwork around the bag and getting used to 
having to keep your foot on the bag when you catch the ball. That's not something that I've been used to having to do at any other position I've played, and it's it's kind of difficult, a lot more difficult than people give it credit for playing first base. Um, but, yeah, Kevin's obviously extremely good at it, and to be able to learn from him and just pick up some things that he does um, really helped me. So let's start with kind of your track and how you ended up playing at Maryland here in your junior year. So playing high school baseball in Canada, what what's the recruiting like when coaches – I know it's just, you know, they're not going across – any waters they're just going to Canada but is recruiting vibe kind of different up there with American coaches coming to Canada looking for players yeah it's really different and it's I would say it's pretty difficult to get recruited just because most schools don't really know or care that there's baseball players up in Canada and you know in fairness there's not really any reason for them to because they have more than enough players down here to fill you know whatever they need so <clears throat> it's it's a bit of a challenge to get like get to play in front of coaches and get that exposure. But um, that's why, like, I would recommend to anyone coming out of Canada, the JUCO route is a super good option because it gets you kind of into that system where coaches are going to be paying attention and noticing you a bit more and give you a chance to play in front of people who can, you know, recruit you to play at the D1 level. And now while you were in high school, were you getting D1 looks out of high school and did you get any offers or was it really just you were looking at the JUCO route? Honestly, I I was pretty clueless about how the whole system worked in high school. Like, I didn't really have any idea, you know, what recruiting was about, what you had to do for it. And I didn't get any any looks from any D1s coming out of high school. And I didn't even get an offer from my JUCO until the summer after my senior year. So I just kind of, like, I was deciding between just, you know, going to school somewhere close to home and probably not playing anymore or – taking this random opportunity that just kind of came out of nowhere and to go to JUCO and keep playing and take a shot at it and ended up deciding to do that and it worked out. And how much did you consider, you know, you're talking about the summer after your senior year, that's coming up right close to, you know, most players already picked their colleges. How much did you consider just going somewhere for school and what do you think kind of swung that decision to head to Colorado to play JUCO baseball? Um, I So I applied and I got accepted to a university in Canada that I was like pretty certain I was going to go to. Um, and then I, I didn't end up getting like the financial aid and the academic scholarship I thought I was going to get and um, just kind of like wasn't really sure what I was going to do. Thought about taking a year off from school and just working. Um, and then my summer ball coach, I was playing my last, my last, summer of high school summer ball and uh he had like a personal friend in Colorado who he'd coached with in the past who was a coach at this JUCO and uh he ended up just calling up my summer coach and being like hey I, I'm short a middle infielder for next year like do you know anybody who still isn't signed and he was like actually yeah I had like this kid who I've coached for the past five years um still has nowhere to play and He's looking for somewhere. He's not really sure what he wants to do, but give him a call. And uh, he ended up just calling me up, and I decided, you know, why not? Like, why not go for it? And if it sucked, I could always just, you know, do a year there and come back and finish up school in Canada anyway. And it was kind of a low-risk option, and I just decided why not. So what's it like, not just for a baseball player, but for just any college kid in general, you know, 
even if you're traveling a long distance to go to college, if you're going to a place, a big campus, you know, you, you've got a lot of people from a lot of different places coming there. But if you're coming from there to Colorado Northwestern Community College, what's that transition like? Because I assume you're not walking onto a giant campus like here in Maryland. It's probably a little bit of a different situation there. Yeah, it was really different. But honestly, I think it helped me a lot, just the fact that it was so small. Like the town was – the, the locals would say it was 1,200 people during the school year and about 400 people outside of the school year. So pretty much everything going on in that town was the college and some oil workers and some ranchers. Like that was about all there was to it. So just having like a really small community to kind of dive into made it a bit easier. It wasn't quite as intimidating and ended up working out pretty well. I settled in there. And so a couple years there, you know, what was that experience like? I'm assuming with not that many people there, you're probably close with your teammates. Were there any guys in similar situations who were coming from a lot further distance to play at Colorado Northwestern? No, most of our, pretty much our entire team was from either Nevada or Utah or Colorado, which are all pretty close. Like within driving distance, they would drive home on weekends sometimes, you know, and I was like this new kid from, somewhere that they'd never even heard of and you know I, I I never went home I never I was just there and nobody really knew where I was coming from but uh <clears throat> it was pretty easy to adjust to it all just because one of the cool things about baseball is you know as long as you're playing you've got a team of guys and it's pretty like as soon as you start playing with them it's pretty easy to make friends and develop relationships with those guys so it it wasn't too tough of a transition I would say and now you're playing junior college baseball and in your first and second years, how much are you then thinking like, hey, I want to keep this going was, you know, you were hitting well there at Colorado Northwestern. Was that making you think like, hey, maybe, you know, some D1 coaches could come calling or was it the coaches coming to you first that made you possibly think about moving on again? Um, mainly what it was, was my coach in junior college was like, you know, I, I don't know how much you know about junior college. I don't know if you know what it's like, but um basically hit like part of his job is to get his players to the next level because that helps him recruit new players and it, it I mean it's just generally part of the job for junior college coaches so he kind of guided me through it and was like you know if you want to keep playing like there's going to be opportunities that are come going to come your way your sophomore year and just you know keep your focus on playing and enjoy playing do your best and if if that's an opportunity you want to pursue then it'll be there for you at the end of your two years. And now, what what was the first contact you got from anyone at Maryland while you were playing over there? Was it, was it a surprise to get, you know, a call from Maryland all the way over on the East Coast? Yeah, a little bit. Um, Maryland was one of, the, one of the last schools to call me, and I'd kind of been recruited by some other schools a little bit. My JUCO coach had a lot of contacts in California, so I was kind of expecting I would land somewhere on the West Coast because of that. And then about midway through my sophomore season, my coach was like, hey, uh, the coach from Maryland called me about you earlier today. Do you want me to give him your number? And I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? And I didn't really know. I had no idea, like, how it happened, how he found out about me or anything. Um, and what I ended up finding out afterwards was the way it all kind of went down was we played a non-conference series in Kansas for – literally no reason at all like we drove 12 hours to go to Kansas and we passed 10 other JUCOs that we could have played on the way there and the reason we were playing this non-conference series in the first place was because one of the teams in our conference had their program cut that year 
so we had this free weekend we had to fill up. We ended up going to Kansas. Um, and I guess Coach Chef had some old connections there from when he used to coach around that area. And, like, one of his friends or someone he knew saw me play and called him about me, and then he called my coach. And it was just, like, a perfect storm of really, really weird coincidences that led to that happening. So, obviously, Maryland goes through a coaching change before this season. John Chef leaves for Virginia Tech. The hitting coach Rob Vaughn takes over as the head coach. So you have an interesting story about Rob Vaughn coming to see you play and kind of what happened out there in Colorado. Yeah, so Chef and Vaughn were kind of both recruiting me at the same time, and I was talking to both of them, and Vaughn had made a plan to come see me play, watch one of our scrimmage games in Colorado. And he, he came out, and it's – so the nearest airport to where I played is a two-hour drive away from the town. So he had to fly in. This was right before they were going on the road for a weekend conference series at, at like, Rutgers or something. Uh, and he had to fly in, rent a car, drive two hours to come to this scrimmage game. And he got there, and we, like, as a team, we looked bad as soon as he arrived. We just, we were kicking the ball all over the place, and I was like, oh, God, like, he's going to, he's going to just completely write me off right away and, like, I'm never going to talk to him again. And then I ended up having a pretty good game, and I hit a homer and a double. And I was expecting to talk to him after the game, and he was nowhere to be found. He just left. And I was like, oh, like, I don't know what more I could have done. I hit a homer, a double. I made a nice play in the field. I stole a base. Like, I guess he just hated me. And I, I didn't know what it was all about. And then he, he ended up calling me, like, two hours later. And he was like, hey, sorry, buddy. I, I had to hit the road because – the the mountain pass is extremely dangerous to drive at night so he had to get on the road before the darkness came and he ended up clearing that up for me and explaining that he didn't just leave because he hated me and thought I was a crappy player he left because he had to get on the road so that he wouldn't crash so that's kind of the funny story about how that happened now did he ever come back and see you play again after that or was that you think enough for coach Vaughn for him to try and get you to Maryland even more no I think I think that was enough he didn't see me play again after that but um the the following night or that night um coach chef called me and gave me an offer over the phone and then we set up an official visit so I think that was kind of like the final step for him to to make sure he was recruiting the right player and now when you come on your official visit had you made the decision that hey you know if this goes well it's going to be Maryland or was there you know a lot still on your mind when you came to visit College Park um I wouldn't say I was completely decided yet um I was kind of overwhelmed honestly because I was I did three official visits in one week in the middle of also playing my college season so I was kind of overwhelmed and then um I just I was trying to put everything together and I had visited all these places and met so many people and all this stuff. But when I definitely, when I came here, I was like, if this, if this is like, if the visit goes well, if I see myself living there and I like it there, it's probably my first choice. And then when I came on the visit, it just confirmed everything that I was hoping and ended up deciding to come here. And now you get here in the fall and of course, the Terps have a spot open at third base. A.J. Lee, who was the third baseman last year, moves over to short after Kevin Smith, such a great Terp, got drafted by the Blue Jays last year. So you're coming in to not only a new team, but a new team that has a position open at a place that you can play. So, you know, how much – obviously you're going to work hard and try and get your playing time, but how much more does that kind of sit in your mind? Like, hey, if I can show these coaches what I can do here in the fall, I can earn a starting spot already in the spring. Yeah, for sure. I think 
Like that's that was kind of part of the recruiting decision for me as well. Was like they they kind of told me you know we're gonna lose Kevin and and we need someone to play in the infield. We need a, another person to play on the left side of the infield and you know you'll have an opportunity to compete for that spot if you come here. So um, I was kind of like that's kind of what I was expecting was I would there'd be a spot open and I'd be in the mix to compete for it and then in the fall just you know trying to do everything I can to to play as well as possible and show them that I deserve to, to be to be playing there and now that first series against Tennessee you know you're going from almost not playing college baseball to a little juco in Colorado now you're playing on the road against an SEC school you guys take two of three I think you had a triple in that series you know w was there any looking back when you were there at Tennessee like man I made it here by my junior year yeah for sure it all kind of caught up to me like right before the game and AJ came up to me um, AJ and I roomed together on the road, so we've gotten pretty close. And he came up to me and he was like, "Hey, man, you nervous?" And I was, I just like kind of put on a brave face, and I was like, "No, no, I'm good, I'm chilling." And then, but I, I was really nervous, and I was just kind of overwhelmed and thinking, like, "Man, you know, I didn't really see myself being in this situation two years ago. I thought maybe I wouldn't even be playing anymore." And then, just you know, to be able to be in the lineup and in there for opening day against an SEC school, like you said, it was kind of a surreal experience, but exciting at the same time. And then once the game started, the nerves just kind of go away and you go back to just playing and doing what you're used to doing. So now back to the team this year after the two of three against Tennessee, it's been such a roller coaster season yeah. for you guys. I mean, kind of on the winning stretch right now, two out of three from Stetson, two out of three from Northwestern and back-to-back -back weekends. And Rob Vaughn said something to me Friday of the Northwestern series. He said, look, you know, we're maybe not where we want to be record-wise, but it's kind of a new season. You get into conference play against these Big Ten teams. So where do you kind of assess the team now, and how far do you think you guys can go if you can really put it together this season? Well, you're definitely right that we've kind of scuffled a bit since we left Tennessee. Um, but, what, I mean, it's exactly like Coach Vaughn said. One of the coolest things about college baseball is – even if the beginning of your season isn't a super hot start, if you win your conference, you got a chance to play in the postseason. So, um, that's, I mean, that's kind of where we're at right now. I think we didn't get off to a super good start, but we're still in a position where we can control our own fate postseason-wise by going out and, and winning the Big Ten. And uh, that's a goal that we had since the beginning of the year was to win the first Big Ten championship in Maryland history. So, if we can, you know, put it all together and keep some momentum rolling through the rest of the Big Ten schedule, I think we should be all right. And now you guys will face Illinois this coming weekend, also a midweek game against William & Mary, so a lot of games at Bob Turtle Smith Stadium in the Big Ten. Now, you know, coming from Canada and then from Colorado Northwestern, as you kind of go around the Big Ten schedule and play these other teams, is there any guys from your JUCO that you know or have any connections with or any guys that you've ever played with? Or is it kind of just like you're seeing new guys all the time? Um, mostly new guys, but actually not from my JUCO, but one of the teams in our conference that we played against a lot, they sent two pitchers to Purdue. And, uh, I, I don't know those guys personally, but I've battled with them for two years and they're both, they're both good left-handed pitchers and they're tough. So it'll be exciting to see them and get another crack at them when Purdue comes to College Park. And, you know, one more thing, Rob Vaughn goes and recruits you from a JUCO. He's you know, the Terps have done this before, Ryan Hill on the team, Brad Barnett, guys that have come from JUCO, Will Watson, another guy who came from a JUCO school, you know, do you kind of feel like, you know, 
once these guys come, like you, you yourself, Will Watson had a great year with the Terps last year, Ryan Hill as well, come to the Terps and really have a good season. You know, you think that just continues it that the coaching staff looks and says, wow, you know, we got to look even more into these JUCO players because they're coming and really helping us out right away. Yeah, hopefully. Um, it definitely factored into my decision to come here that they had kind of a track record of recruiting JUCO guys who turned out to be successful. Um, but it's like JUCO guys are interesting because they're kind of like a quick fix. Like if you need a if you have an open position, you lose someone to the draft that you weren't expecting or maybe even you were expecting, but you just kind of have to fill a position right away. It's it's a pretty good option because you get guys who have college experience and are a little more ready to maybe maybe play their first year on campus. So hopefully um, Coach Vaughn is happy with me and he continues to recruit JUCO guys in the future. Well, Taylor, I'm thankful that Rob Vaughn, even though he left that game in Colorado, was able to still make you the offer and you made it to Maryland. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the Maryland Baseball Network podcast. For sure. Thank you for having me. Our thanks to Taylor Wright for joining us on this episode of the Maryland Baseball Network podcast. Now I'm back with Connor and Mr. Newcomb. Let's talk midweek. It's been a struggle for Maryland this season. They are going to play their second midweek against William and Mary on Tuesday. You were there the first time and it did not go well. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the scary M word around the Maryland baseball program <laughs> this season. Midweek. Uh, it was scary last year as well, if we, as we've talked about a lot, but only the starts were scary from the pitchers. The Terps would come back. They won 7 of 10. Everything was fine because the offense could pick up the pitchers. This season, to be quite honest with you, the pitching hasn't been as bad in the midweek as it was last year. I mean, Mark DeLuya has given some solid starts in the midweek, some other ones that have been okay. I mean, even last week against Richmond, you know, he only went the three innings, but he really wasn't bad at all. Mike Basteria came in, gave two solid innings. Things just kind of fell apart after that, and that's kind of been the story for the Terps and in that last one against William Mary that was the first midweek of the season the Terps were coming off two out of three against Tennessee feeling good and then they go down to Williamsburg and lose 10 to three down there it was Elliot Zollner who got the start that was before kind of Mark DeLuya was going to get his chance although things were a little messed up Mark DeLuya pitched four innings Sunday against Tennessee so he couldn't make that midweek start but Zollner went just an inning and a third then the Terps went to Billy Phillips who allowed three runs Hunter Parsons was really the only bright spot in that game. That was when he had his four-up, four-down relief, relief appearance that kind of you know, propelled him to start getting it going this season. But the Terps just struggled. The arms, nobody came in and really had a solid outing at all for Maryland except for Parsons out of the bullpen. Everybody really struggled. And then the offense was held so quietly in that game. Zach Jankarski had a couple of homers in that game. But other than that, it was really nothing from the Maryland offense. And that's kind of what, what it's been in all the midweeks this year. Things have not gone well for William and Mary since that Maryland game. They are 10 and 18 on the season and one and five to start CAA play. Uh, we don't have announced starters on either side yet, but here's the thing, Connor. Last year they won these games. This year they're not. I, I don't think we're unfair in saying Maryland's got to start winning these midweek games, especially against a team like William and Mary that, by all accounts, is not all that good. Yeah, the Terps just. They have to win them, and hopefully, you know, it gives them a little bit of a better shot, at least playing at home in this one in College Park against William & Mary. But, look, the Terps, as you said, they just have to start winning these ball games, you know, and the starts haven't been bad. You know, there's been a couple rough ones 
uh, Deluya against UNC, one of them. But there's been some other starts, and I, I just go back to the Richmond game last week because I think that encompasses everything about Maryland's midweeks this season. I mean, Mark Deluya, look, his freshman year, you don't have him on the weekend, so you're not looking for six, seven, eight, you know, incredible innings from him. You're just looking for him to go out there and get it done. And he did that over three innings. Mike Fasteria comes in, another two solid innings, and you think the offense is set up against a Richmond team who had already dipped into its bullpen and you're looking for the Terps' offense to kind of come out and get the win. Instead, it was the Terps' bullpen that really struggled in that one. Sean Fisher loaded the bases. Elliot Solner came in, was not nearly as effective as he was in his previous two outings before that. And the Terps just let that game unravel. And now it's another chance against a William & Mary team who, as you said, at 10-18 and 18 this season for the Tribe over the weekend, lost 2-3 of three to UNCW. It's just a game that the Terps, frankly, I mean, you're looking at the midweeks and you're, maybe they're not must-win games because it's just one game. You can bounce back with Big Ten wins. But if they continue to you know, rattle off these losses against teams who are obviously going to be much further below Maryland in the RPI rankings, it's not going to look good at the end of the season for the Terps. I think, and you know, correct me if you don't agree with me on this, but I think Maryland would take the start it got from Mark DeLuya last Tuesday every single time. But the difference this week is that Coming into that midweek game last week, at least mentally, you had Biondic and Murphy fully ready because they barely pitched at all in the weekend series against Stetson. This weekend, Biondic pitched Saturday and Sunday, albeit just one pitch on Sunday. Murphy threw a lot in an inning and two-thirds on Sunday, so you don't know how available those two guys are. Fisher threw a ton on Saturday, so you don't know how available he is. So the pitching staff might be in a little bit of a dire situation. Uh, I mean, that's probably too strong of a word, but you don't know how available three of your key guys are out of the pen before this Tuesday game. Yeah, and, you know, you're looking at it like, hey, it's going to be Deluya, you're going to have Vesturia, and you're going to have Zollner. Those three guys you've really tried in that midweek starting role this season, it's going to be really up to them. I think after only throwing the one pitch, they'll probably have an inning to get out of Biondic on Tuesday, but maybe not John Murphy. He threw a lot of pitches in an inning and two-thirds on Sunday. And again, Sean Fisher might be available for a couple outs, but you mentioned that as well. You know, he threw so many pitches on Saturday so you're looking at those three guys who none of them have really fully stepped up into that midweek starter role they're all probably going to get their chance to hit the mound again on Tuesday and another thing for William and Mary they have a midweek game the next day against George Washington and for William and Mary frankly even though they have beaten the Terps if you look at it George Washington probably a more winnable game for William and Mary so you don't know who they're going to throw in one of these two games if they think one's more winnable than the other which is just another reason that the Terps really need to go out there and get this win at home then this weekend Maryland will play its second Big Ten series against Illinois, who was ranked 25th last week but dropped two of three at home to Iowa. The fighting Illini are now 17-7, and 4-2 and in conference play. They have a midweek Wednesday, a massive rivalry matchup against Illinois State. Can't wait for that one. The headlining factor, I guess, with Illinois is that this team – rakes they hit a lot of home runs and they are led by Brett Spillane who through 24 games has some of the most ridiculous stats you will see he is batting 494 14 home runs 38 RBIs his on base percentage is 579 he is slugging 1.149 he has 13 doubles and he's also stolen 12 bases this guy does absolutely everything for this team and they have a bunch of other guys who aren't getting the credit because of how good Spillane has been, but some of these numbers are impressive. Michael Massey's hitting 350 and has 21 RBIs. Ben Troik is hitting 302, has 16 RBIs. Doran Turchin has six home runs. Zach Taylor has four home runs. And everybody that starts 
for this team, at least one through eight in the order, has double-digit RBIs. Nobody has less than 11 of their eight everyday starters. And just so the listeners know, we are recording this on April 2nd. Not an April Fool's joke there on the Brent Spillane numbers. Yeah. He is hitting 494. The slugging percentage is over 1,100. The on-base percentage is almost 600. I think the most damning number in all of that is you look through all these offensive stats, and then he's just gone out there and also stolen 12 bases on the season. So even when he gets on base, you're looking at a lot of power hitters who when they get to first, you're not really worried about them getting to second. But you have to worry about him as a stolen base threat as well. You know, he's on pace right now for a Big Ten player of the week spot. I mean, if he continues to hit like this, he player might the be year. the national player of the year yeah. right now. But, uh, yeah, excuse me, player of the year spot for the Big Ten. But he might be the national player of the year if he continues to hit like this. So, you know, the Terps might want to look around, look at pitching around him maybe a little bit this weekend. But as you said, like, Michael Massey is out there hitting 350 and probably not getting the recognition he deserves because his teammates hitting over or hitting almost 500 and has played every game for the Illini. So this is a tough lineup they're going to face. So the Terps' bats really are going to have to go out there and hit this weekend because the Illinois arms just did not look good against Iowa. Yeah, that's true. Maybe, though, the Iowa theory on Brett Spillane that they used on Sunday could be something the Terps uh, look into. Spillane walked four times in a 4-2 loss on Sunday to Iowa. The, re- the weekend rotation starts for Illinois with Quinn Snarskis on Friday, who had been really good this season. But on Friday against Iowa, he was not good. Two innings, five hits, and six earned runs. On the season in six starts, he is 3-1 and one with a 4.37 ERA. Then on Saturday is Andy Fisher this week against Illinois. He, or excuse me, against Iowa. He got the only win of the season of the series, excuse me. Six innings, five hits, five runs, only two earned, three strikeouts. But he walked six over 106 pitches on the season. He is a 3.75 ERA. And then Sunday's Ty Weber has been the most consistent starter for the Illini, a 2.74 ERA and a 3-1 and record. None of these guys strike out very many batters. They all have more walks than you'd like if you're Illinois. So this is a team led by the offense, but I think it's a chance for Maryland's offense to also have a big weekend. Yeah, you got to look at especially this Saturday game between Illinois and Iowa. It was the one game that Illinois won in the three-game series, 13-12. to 12. You're thinking, oh, a bad start from both starters. You know, the bullpen was in early. But Andy Fisher went six innings and gave up two earned runs in this one. But you look at the box score, Illinois went into the ninth inning with a 13-5 to five lead and allowed seven runs in the ninth inning, just barely holding on 13-12 to 12 over Iowa. This is a pitching staff that, as you said, doesn't strike out a lot of guys, doesn't walk a lot of guys. And the bullpen has been shaky this season, so the Terps are going to want to look to maybe get those pitch counts elevated a little bit from the three starters for Illinois, and then the bats are just going to have to show up this weekend. The last two weekend series wins for the Terps against Stetson and against Northwestern, they've won really because of great starting pitching performances, and the bats have gotten the hits you know, at the right times, but maybe haven't been very consistent still. They still, on Sunday at one point, Jack Pagley Arena retired 15 consecutive Terps hitters, so even though they won that, came back and won that game, the offense wasn't great at all on Sunday. The Terps really need to come out and take this advantage and get some big hits because even if Hunter Parsons maybe has his best stuff, you know, he might still give up two, three, four runs just because of how good this Illinois offense is. The weekend rotation for Maryland, we expect it to be the same as it's been all year. So Friday, Taylor Bloom, Saturday, Tyler Bloom, and Sunday, Hunter Parsons. For me, I think you want to see more of the same out of Taylor Bloom, just try and limit that one big inning that hurt him this past weekend. You want to see an adjustment from Tyler Blome because he really struggled against ECU, 
was the best he's ever been against Stetson and then struggled a lot again this weekend against Northwestern. And then Sunday, I think, is the best pitching matchup of the weekend with Weber against Parsons. Yeah, and you want to look for Parsons to build off of what he did Sunday again. As I said, he gave up the beginning, but it was huge to see him battle back from that, get out of the bases loaded jam in the fourth, as I talked about, and cruise through the fifth, sixth, and seventh innings. And it's going to be another fun series in College Park, I think. I, I think we're going to see more offense than we've seen the last couple of weekends. So I think it should be a fun one in College Park. You know, if the weather decides to warm up at any point soon here, we could see some more home runs flying out. I don't know if that's going to be the case this weekend against Illinois, but I do think we'll see some more runs, and it'll be a fun weekend against two teams that are going to be battling it out all year in the Big Ten. So Tuesday, Maryland will host William & Mary in a midweek at 4 o'clock, 3.30 pregame show here on the Maryland Baseball Network. Weather looks a little bit iffy, so stick with us on social media for updates on that. Then on the weekend, 6.30 Friday, 2 o'clock Saturday, and 1 o'clock Sunday are the first pitch times. And as always, every game will be brought to you here on the Maryland Baseball Network, and we hope you will join us for that. So that pretty much wraps up Episode 51 of the Maryland Baseball Network podcast. Special thanks to Taylor Wright for joining us on this one. Follow us on Twitter, as always, for updates at MDBaseballNet. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com backslash MDBaseballNet. Look at all our content at our website, MarylandBaseballNetwork.com. And if you like what you hear on this podcast, subscribe to it by searching Maryland Baseball Network in the iTunes store. So as always, for my partner Connor Newcomb and our entire Maryland Baseball Network staff, I'm Justin Galanti. So long, everyone.